You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Tuesday, and today you'll hear an episode from our Takeover series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. I'm the host of the Flip Maffler podcast. And as always, every Tuesday and sometimes even on Thursday, we actually have somebody come and do a takeover which honestly gives me more time to do what I need to do in my life, but it also creates great content on the podcast. So this time, a good friend of mine, really, really a good friend of mine, Ted Wynn, he has a passion for the heroes in healthcare business. And we all know how the healthcare business has been impacted over the last years. And he, he started a podcast right in the middle of it. So Ted, tell us what this podcast series is all about that, and who do you interview in that? Sure. Well, thanks, Andrew, first. And second, thanks for having me here. Yeah, you know, our tagline is dedicated to highlighting bold, selfless professionals in the healthcare industry who are focusing on transforming lives in their communities. And we just thought with the COVID COVID, um, pandemic that we're all living through and still continuing to go through that these people and their stories just wasn't wasn't being told or needed to be highlighted more. And so we just took it on as a a bit of a passion project and said, let's start talking about these people and what they're doing. And uh, as a result, it's taken off. We have, uh, we are just finished episode 10. Ah, Congrats. uh, Thanks. And we have uh, last numbers I checked were about 1700 downloads already. That is awesome. So the podcast is called Heroes of Healthcare. Yep. And uh, yeah, and and, uh, we are going to have links to your podcast here. So if people want to continue listening to it after, even after the series is done, they can go check it out. We'll obviously write a blog and all those things. Share some of the people you're interviewing so we get a taste of it. Yeah. So, yeah, and they can, they can listen on the Heroes of Healthcare podcast.com website. So we have a whole website with the episodes posted there, Spotify, Apple, all the regular places as well. But, yeah, we've been really fortunate. Um, we have uh, uh, Dr. Mark Knapp. He was the chief marketing, uh, excuse me, chief medical officer for Mount Sinai in New York City who gave us a whole impact of how New York City responded to the pandemic and, and the stress on the people. We had the chief medical officer for Navant Massive Healthcare System in the North Carolina and Southeastern market, talking all about vaccine safety of mRNA and the vaccine that's been coming out. And then we like to mix it up a little bit. We had an old time friend of mine, Jack Curry, who is the voice of the New York Yankees, come on and talk all about baseball and how baseball was dealing with the COVID pandemic, but also how baseball was giving us some normalcy in our lives. Because one of the things we also want to focus on is not just the physicality of, of of the healthcare system, but also mental health. So we've also had the chief wellness officer from another major healthcare system talking about physician burnout, dealing with all the different clinicians and how are they dealing with the medical stress that they're under, under these uncertain times. So it's been very exciting. And it's been, uh, we've had such a cross section of people. I think the listeners are going to find something in uh, great out of each one of them. Awesome, man. Ted, so, so everybody listening, you might be listening to the first episode. You might be listening to the 10th takeover episode of this series. So just make sure you, you look back and see if you have missed anything. But each one of them is uh, something that I feel 
Ted, you being so passionate about it is going to bring life to a lot of people as they hear it. So Ted, again, thanks for doing this. And everybody, enjoy the show. Today, I'm joined by two pioneers in women's telehealth. Tanya Mack and Dr. Ann Patterson have been trailblazing women's telehealth in maternal fetal medicine before people knew that there was such a thing as telemedicine. Tanya Mack is a licensed RN and is president of Women's Telehealth for more than 10 years. Women's health services delivered by telemedicine in seven southeastern United States that specialize in high-risk obstetrics, maternal fetal medicine, and the group has completed over 10,000 subspecialty women health encounters. The company has provided their services as far as ways Guatemala, India, Congo, and Uzbekistan. Also joining me is Dr. Ann Patterson, a board-certified physician, and her team have been providing maternal-fetal medicine expertise for years. Dr. Patterson received her medical training and completed her OBGYN residency and MFM fellowship at Emory University. She was based in private practice at Northside Hospital for over 20 years and is a national leader in obstetrical care. Dr. Patterson also has her master's degree in engineering from Georgia Institute of Technology and has been an early adopter in cutting-edge ultrasound, EMR, and telemedicine technologies. Dr. Patterson is also a true rocket scientist. And prior to medical school, Dr. Patterson was using her engineering skills from Georgia Tech working at NASA. Dr. Patterson has been featured on NPR, The Wall Street Journal, Prevention Magazine. Most recently, both Tanya and Dr. Patterson authored a timely article for Connections Magazine exploring the COVID-19 vaccine with pregnancies. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Heroes of Healthcare podcast, Tanya and Dr. Patterson. Welcome. Thank you. We're glad to be here. We're excited to have you guys here. And we're talking about the great work you're doing. And I know that there's going to be lots of interest in this episode because there's a lot of uncertainty in this area. So before we dive in, I would love it if you two could just give our listeners a little bit of your background, where you come from, how you got into this crazy world of healthcare that we're in, and a little bit about your group and your organization. I'll start because mine's quick. I'm Tanya Mack, and I'm president of Women's Telehealth, and I was trained as a nurse. And after two years in pediatric oncology, I kind of went into the business of healthcare and never really looked back. So Dr. Patterson and I have worked together now for, well, we won't out ourselves here in exactly (laughs) the number of years, but our specialty that we want to talk about today is women's telehealth and in particular, a subset of that, which is high risk pregnancy care. And in 2008, we sold a business where we had a brick and mortar medical practice that focused on obstetrics, gynecology, and in particular, high risk OB care. And Dr. Patterson will share her background in a minute. But after we sold that business, we were looking for a way to work together again. And we blossomed into telehealth. And I'll let her tell the story because she was more closer to it. But the two areas we'd like to focus on today is to talk about how we got into telehealth, the growth of telehealth, which has really sped up in the adoption over this year of the pandemic with Mm COVID-19. Most people saw it before then as a nice to have or one alternative way if you didn't really have access. And we've all learned in the past year that it's become a necessity to decrease our risk, right? And then the second thing we'd like to talk about that, Ted, I appreciate you having us on today for that is pretty timely is we want to talk about how COVID is affecting pregnancy and expectant parents. And as a subset of that, we want to talk about the COVID vaccination and how that's impacting 
pregnancy and what our real life experience has been with that. So let me turn it over to Dr. Patterson to introduce herself and also tell a little bit about how we got started in the business. So I never planned to be in medicine. I was an aerospace engineer. I went to Georgia Tech and I went to work for NASA. <laughs> and while I was there, I got involved with a biomedical project. And I actually worked for the man, Dr. William Libin, who invented the first laser ever used in medicine. And he strongly encouraged me to go back to school and go to medicine, which I resisted for some time. But I ended up coming back to Atlanta, going to tech, getting my master's and my pre-med simultaneously and ended up at Emory Medical School and without question, just fell in love with obstetrics and stayed in obstetrics. I have a fellowship in fetal physiology and maternal fetal medicine. And so obviously both engineering and medicine, as Tanya said, we had a brick and mortar practice, pretty traditional. And after we ended that practice, I was looking for another way to be able to provide maternal fetal care in smaller rural areas where patients obviously would either have to travel if they could or not get the kind of care that we could provide. Mm -hmm. And found telemedicine 11 years ago, long before it was, you know, really well known or even people thought it was a viable option. And so we started a business back in the in early 2010 and never looked back. And all we really do is telemedicine. And we really do provide this in multiple places in multiple states to people who would otherwise not be able to have this kind of care. Yeah, I wanted to interject here just a little bit, Ted, to give you the scope of what we're talking about. Maternal fetal medicine requires a three-year fellowship beyond an OBGYN residency. Wow. So since we operate in multiple states, for example, in Georgia, we probably have somewhere between only 40 and 50 doctors for the entire state that are qualified to care for high-risk pregnancy care. And that would be when the OBGYN does not know what to do, they punt to the next level specialist, which is what Dr. Patterson does. And other states that we've been in, uh, New Mexico and the widespread in the Southeast, they're similar. We have high risk specialists mostly in academic centers and in large metropolitan areas. But our stimulus for creating telehealth maternal fetal care was if you're pregnant with twins in the mountains or in an, a rural area where there isn't a metropolitan or a NICU or anything like this. We saw telemedicine 10 years ago at the very first beginning of, for our specialty, the use of telemedicine as a way to kind of pipe it into areas that did not have access. Because how it was before then is if you were pregnant with twins in Tacoa, Georgia, you would be helivacked or ambulanced into Atlanta, and we hope you made it. Mm -hmm. So this allows us to use telehealth technologies to communicate with the OBGYNs in the community. Our business is referral. We don't have high-risk women call us up and want to be high-risk. Certainly, they're afraid of these diagnoses and concerns, but we are a resource for local OBGYNs around the country. And it is a way for us to keep the patients in their home communities and get their high-risk situations resolved. And I would just say, Anne, maybe 80, 80 to 90% of the time, they do not need to be transported. And we can manage them by scanning their babies, doing audio-visual calls and telehealth, and keeping them in their home communities for the duration of the pregnancy. Maybe even higher than that. Depending on the resources locally, sometimes as much as 95% can be managed locally. Yeah. That's we were crazy. kind of trailblazers here. We actually yeah. collected over 
almost 50,000 high-risk OB visits, 100% by telehealth. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I would say maybe we should change this episode to the pioneers of healthcare instead maybe. of the heroes of healthcare. It's hard to be a trailblazer sometime. Back then, nobody yeah. paid for it. Today, reimbursement is very well. But when we started, only eight states in the United States paid for what we were doing. And Georgia was one of them. Georgia was one. Wow. Yeah. So love to talk a little bit more about that, Dr. Patterson and Tanya. Tell us a little bit more about it. So technology is so rapid. And 11 years ago, what did telehealth look like? You know, now we live in the world of Zoom and Teams and every laptop has a camera on it and all those sorts of things. I'm sure that's not quite how it looked about 11 years ago. And the other thing, too, is rural communities today even have connectivity issues. So how'd you work with that 11 years ago? Yeah, it's a, it's a complication. So Georgia actually had done something really progressive about this under Zell Miller and Oxendine when he was a commissioner of insurance. They started uh, what was then called the Georgia Partnership for Telehealth, now known as the Global Partnership for Telehealth. And they actually, at, at that point in time, actually had T1 lines laid throughout the state. And people had really good connectivity throughout Georgia for telehealth. So in telehealth, there are kind of uh, several things. But first, I want to say real telehealth is much, much more than a Zoom call. For sure. So you have to have a network that is both HIPAA compliant and secure. You have to have equipment. And equipment back in those days looked like a kind of large ultrasound machine. It was a cart and it cost somewhere between, depending on who you bought it from, thirty-five dollars to $45,000. So wow. it was expensive. Yeah. And you had to be, you know, obviously pay to be on whatever network you are on. So it could be quite costly. And the equipment costs have come down significantly since we started, which is really nice because it makes it much more affordable for practices, clinics, hospitals, wherever we are. Right. So you have those two things. And then you have the provider. And so the Global Partnership for Telehealth has multiple specialties that use their network and multiple providers throughout Georgia. But they're not exclusively in Georgia. They're in other areas as well. But they are one of the platforms that we use. Just to give you an example, Ted, when we first started, you know, Dr. Patterson mentioned just the cart alone, which they were made for each specialty. And so a cardiologist would have an EKG machine. We look at babies. We have ultrasound. They were all mm -hmm. custom made. Right. They had to have a T1 connection point to point to get them all working. And those both upfront and maintenance costs probably were 50, 50 to $60,000 to start a program. Fast forward to today's environment. We can stand up one of these centers. We bypassed the cart. And we can connect through laptops, apps, peripheral devices for probably six to $10,000. So in 10 years, we've stripped away about three-fourths of the cost mm -hmm. of standing these up. So really, any doctor's office, we operate in doctor's offices, outpatient clinics like departments of community health, and also hospitals that don't have high-risk OB physicians. But it's gotten to the point that a big plus as technologies rolled, reimbursements come in, is we're now about a fourth of the cost that we were when we started 10 years ago. But keeping up with technology is definitely one of our strengths and one that we have to keep up with. The other thing is there are amazing peripherals that people don't realize, especially when we're talking about this is more than a Zoom call. Obviously, we can see 
in what we do, real-time ultrasound wherever the patient is, and that we've scanned patients as far away as Bangladesh. And we can look at the baby and see what's going on. We can see the heart and all that, just like we were standing right there in the room. Amazing. The other thing that's amazing is that they have Bluetooth stethoscopes that I can put in my ears and direct on a screen here. They can see it there, and they put it on the patient, and I can hear the maternal heart or the maternal lungs just like I was standing at bedside. Wow. I do think one direction we're headed that we've alluded to, Ted, that everybody's gotten used to at least the idea of telehealth over COVID, right? Some, whether it's a medication refill or sure. a follow-up visit or whatever. But those visits are mostly audiovisual based on any kind of platform. And during COVID waivers, they really don't even need to be today HIPAA compliant. We've kind of bypassed that during this pandemic period. But the next evolution, we think, will be connected telehealth. So, for example, right now we have a project in New Mexico where we have a little kit that we're sending to pregnant ladies' homes up in the mountains that have a pulse oximeter, a fetoscope, a Doppler, so we can hear the baby's heartbeat, a blood pressure cuff, a scale, all with Bluetooth technology in their homes for less than $250. Amazing. So we're going to move beyond just Zoom. One of the challenges is if you're Dr. Patterson, you want real data, real clinical data, not just what the patient's self-reporting. So right now we're all Zooming with our doctors, but if I put, you know, a bean in my ear and tell you I have an ear infection, you can't look at home and see, but soon with those kits, you will be able to. So we're Zooming telehealth today as the majority of patients have experienced, but the next version of what we're already doing for all these years is what I call connected telehealth, where we have real clinical data to back it up. That's, I mean, it's, it's, it is unbelievable how fast it goes and it just keeps getting faster. So with the Bluetooth, so with the patient, you're, you're sending all the different meters, the pulse ox and the different meters. I won't try to say the others. I'm I'm not clinical and I won't try to be. And those work through their computer's Bluetooth reception or their, would it even work with their iPhone or whatever? Depending on what is sent and what platform that they are on with the institution that is providing this for them. And there are different different platforms that work a little differently. Say, for instance, if you have a pulse ox on your finger, it not only tells you how well you're oxygenating, but it tells you your heart rate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a very easy device that can data can be transmitted. And some quickly. work, uh, they're moving in the direction of smartphone technology, where yeah. you have a glucometer that plugs into your smartphone, and mm-hmm. then those results are just transmitted up to your provider. Um, in some cases, you, your smartphone acts as the platform. Or an app on your smartphone acts as the platform rather than installing a totally different telemedicine platform. Yeah. So we're moving in the right direction of making care mobile where I am with my smartphone. We're heading in that direction. But your when your guys services, though, is it still requires the mother to go to a facility. Yes. You're not quite yet probably doing home, but that's probably not far behind. So I think it depends on what you are doing. Okay. For instance, wherever the patients are seen initially, legally, they have a telehealth presenter there. And that's wise because most of these women that come have some complication or or the baby has a complication or that we wouldn't be seeing them. I mean, there are certainly occasions when we say, 
everything looks wonderful. You don't need to come back. But they do come to a center where they have, where they are scanned and we have trained ultrasonographers who do high risk obstetric ultrasound. So that's how I can see the baby real time. I like to think of it, Ted, as there is direct to consumer telehealth. Mm-hmm. which on the back of our insurance cards, rather than go to the ER at, you know, 10 at night, right. we can call and get a low acuity kind of audiovisual Zoom experience. But for us, we're not direct to consumer. We're more business to business. So they have to be in a clinical setting until women learn to scan their own babies, <laughs> which probably isn't going to be soon to get us those high risk pictures. We're still dependent upon the telehealth presenter in the clinical setting to get us the clinical data, we need to be able to diagnose and treat the patient at this high risk level. Perfect. Makes sense. Thanks for clarification. Do you think it will get there? Will it be, you know, I can call MD Live to your point or Teladoc, tell them I got a cold or I have sore throat or whatever it might be, and they can do something and prescribe to it. Do you think it will get there? I think for certain types of clinical problems, low, like I say, low acuity, You know, I one time had the opportunity to talk to Blue Cross Blue Shield nationally for their direct-to-consumer call centers that handle all these, you know, Zoom calls. And they were telling me that 86% of the time, it's a low acuity thing. I have the flu, I have a respiratory infection. But for us in particular, and maybe like, for example, a cardiologist, you know, I'm not going to diagnose your heart problem remotely over a Zoom call, probably. But the apps are getting surprisingly innovative and precise, and they're improving all the time. So for some circumstances, I think, yes, it will get there faster. But for ones that are complex anyway, the subspecialties, I think we're still going to have to have clinicians as the eyes, ears, and hands for the patients in a remote setting. What do you think? Yeah. Okay, great. So we've seen how COVID and the pandemic have loosened, as your guys said, a lot of the abilities to bill, a lot of the abilities to do a lot of the work via tele. And hopefully we're in the beginning of the end of this pandemic and things will go back. What do you guys see in the tele world? Do you think we're going to go back to a lot of those regulations and those, what I would call a time. I'll answer that one. It's a good question right now in the industry with the pandemic. We're in a period of section 1135 waivers, which means we can use any device. We can cross state lines to provide telehealth where we had to be licensed where the patient sits before. We cannot be on a HIPAA compliant device. And President Biden has extended these waivers already through December of this year. Some of them, we think it will, the answer to your question is, I think it will be a hybrid. I think that some things like HIPAA compliance will be reinstated. You know, we like our privacy. We don't want our health records out for everyone to see. I think getting back on a HIPAA compliant platform will be an example that will be rolled back. Some of the reimbursements may be rolled back. You know, what we're able to do on a virtual exam with real clinical evidence versus a phone call will be reimbursed at different rates, not the same. On the other hand, the access and availability and some of the payment structures, I think, will continue. So my opinion is it will be mixed. We'll have some regulations rolled back. Already, we have one new regulation that's been made permanent, and that is the geographical location. So it used to be only if you're in a rural area 
like for Medicare, for example, are you allowed to be paid for telehealth? That has permanently gone away. You know, we've learned that in COVID, even, you know, where people are on top of each other are more important to decrease the risk than, you know, out in the middle of a, you know, farm somewhere. What do you think, Ann? I think it will be a mix. I think definitely more HIPAA compliance will be reinstituted because I think that's, you know, I think we don't want our health records just running around the world and, you know, people being able to, you know, have access to whatever you're saying or doing immediately that you don't even know who they are. So I think that will roll back. I do think that you will always have more telehealth than you ever did in the past, and it will be more accepted. And it will be more accepted, not just, I don't think patients have ever had a problem. I've had very, very, I've had like maybe one ever that had a problem with telehealth in 11 years. But I think that there were institutions who really were, had great reservations about using it, that this will always now be a part of their uh, platform. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to add, Ted, was a, a good byproduct of this COVID and telehealth intersection has been what you brought up earlier. And that is that we assume in the United States that we all have great broadband coverage. Mm -hmm. Telehealth can occur by satellite, cellular or broadband. In the U.S., it's mostly broadband. Mm -hmm. And we've made great strides in now realizing that there are large medical deserts that need to be wired for telehealth. And that process has started with COVID funding and stimulus money. And so where Dr. Patterson said before, Georgia was one of the leaders in wiring a network for telehealth early on 10 years ago. We now are going to have a better network after COVID for telehealth. Yeah. So two, well, I guess two things. One is, so while some things may slide back, you know, the HIPAA compliance things in terms of the, the platforms and all, it sounds like though you feel that one of the benefits of a pandemic will be that we have accelerated telemedicine, the telework that you guys are doing. It has enabled us to move this faster than if we were going under the old pre-pandemic days. Oh yeah. There were definitely states that did not allow telehealth reimbursement at all. Mm -hmm. Or licensure restrictions, you know, in licensure, in payment, in clinical processes, we probably have accelerated telehealth adoption by several years in the past year of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. It's good to find some of the silver linings out yes. of such a, such a tough... For our business, yes. Yes, for such a tough year that we've gone through. You know, I heard you mention, and I think it might be fun to hear some of the stories, though, that you mentioned about Bangladesh and some of the things. Tell some of the listeners about some of the far-reaching places that you've been able to do and where you've been able to bring care, where care normally wouldn't have been available. So there have been a lot of odd places, a riverbed in Guatemala. And Bangladesh. Wow. But to me, the most important has been in really small rural communities in the rural south where these patients, we really have some sick ladies and they really just couldn't get help. And you're there and you realize the baby has a, a major heart defect and you are able to arrange for the patient to be delivered at a metropolitan center so that the baby has immediate access to heart surgery as needed. You know, to me, those things are really great. The Bangladesh story is kind of interesting. That's a good one. You should tell They that. asked me if I would do a demonstration to the Minister of Health about what we could do. And I agreed with the caveat that the patient that we were scanning live so that they could see that 
you know, they had an interactive audiovisual situation. They had the patient there, but they could see what I was seeing. And she obviously, it's a predominantly Muslim country. And so she was screened and, and shielded from from the audience. And I would say to you that if they were not all of the physicians that were there, I think were made. And so my one thing that I said was that I, this lady had to agree and that whomever picked her Please pick a normal, have her scan before, and we know that this is a normal baby because this was an exercise and a demonstration of how equipment works right. and how what kind of care you could give. This was not a demonstration in finding a fetal abnormality. So when I came on the screen ahead of time to talk to the patient and uh, make sure everything was fine, she looked like a deer in headlights, she's petrified. And I thought, oh, my goodness, they have twisted this woman's arm. And so, of course, you know, I try to be very understanding of of patients and their situations and what they go through anyway. And I felt really felt sorry for this lady. And I tried to be as gentle as I could. And then we started the scan. And fortunately, and I, I obviously had to keep a straight face and a steady voice, realized that this child had hydrocephalus. So the baby had enlarged ventricles on both sides of the head. And I guess before we ever had appropriate medical terms for this, they call it the child waterhead. And, you know, there was a time and I do remember when we didn't didn't know to shunt. And today you can put a shunt in. Children can go up. And I know a physician who had hydrocephalus and has a shunt in place and operates every day. Mm-hmm. So you can certainly be perfectly normal. It's, a, it's something that can be medically managed easily today. But it does need medical attention. And without it, there can be some significant consequences. Anyway, this child had large ventricles on both sides of the head and would definitely need to be delivered in a center where the baby was, you know, would get immediate attention, need a shunt. And obviously I did not feel like it was my position in what I was doing to do this. So I insisted at the end of the demonstration that an obstetrician in the audience to come to talk with me. Individual. Wow. And so I was able and I, I thanked the lady and asked, you know, for her graciousness and allowing us to show this to the Minister of Health and the compadres he had had come there. So I talked to the obstetrician and I said, obviously, this was not the intent here, but the baby has hydrocephalus bilaterally. And obviously, she needs to have attention. And can you see that she is scanned and, and high risk obstetricians see her? And he promised me he would. So, I mean, it was the best I could do, but it was not what was intended. Yeah. Yeah. But it shows the power and the significance of what you guys do and work. And, you know, hopefully she got the care that she might not have normally had had, you know, you not done that. So while she was probably, as you said, scared (laughs) and, and, you know, frightened by the situation, it certainly was a blessing in disguise. I was going to interject just one more quick story. We have a relationship with a group called the Addis Group who works by telehealth in over 38 countries and primarily in sub-Saharan Africa. And these are bush clinics where they may not have an obstetrician, let alone a high-risk obstetrician. And we are one of the very few in the country groups where they send us patients. Like, for example, I can think of one lady at about 20 weeks came in. They suspected she had a stroke. She wasn't moving on one side. They didn't really know what to do in a bush clinic, but they get us all the clinical data and then the doctors kind of log in and direct the care, not directly with the patient, but kind of the idea of directing the clinicians in the clinic with what to do. Uh So even though we're oceans away, 
We yeah. still have the ability to provide access in a bush clinic in Africa Amazing. to help pretty close to real time. Amazing. That's great. Such a, such awesome work you guys are doing. I appreciate it. So let's start talking about, if you don't mind, let's talk about COVID. Let's. It's a hot topic. Yeah, or it's a hot topic. We're, you think we're tired of it, but it's funny. We all want to continue to talk about it. And there's so much more to still learn. I think everybody thinks we're kind of... We're at the end of it, but I think it's really just the beginning of so much that we've learned coming out of this, especially as it relates to your your world. But so let's talk about it in terms of what did you guys see a year ago? It's hard to believe it was a year ago that this was we were now in full full gear of attacking this pandemic. And what have you seen over the last year? And then we can segue into a little bit of the vaccine. And and what are your guys? I, I know that our listeners are going to really want to know about it, especially as it w- relates to pregnancy. But let's let's talk about what you've learned over the last 12 months. Well, we've learned that I think that vaccines are important and both the American College and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine encourage pregnant women to be vaccinated because it's far, far better to have a vaccine and prevent this than, you know, get COVID. It is an RNA vaccine. It is not a live vaccine. So you're not going to get it from it. You're not going to have a problem with DNA because it's an RNA vaccine. And so we really encourage people to get this. I can pause you there. Can you can you and you and I know you're not a epidemiologist and you're, you know, an infectious disease. But can you explain that a little bit to the audience? And the reason why I say that is because I sat on a roundtable about a week or so ago. And it's funny that one of the big misconceptions of that RNA technology is people believe that the vaccine is altering their DNA. We hear that too. Yes. No, it doesn't. It is no. It is not a DNA. It, it has nothing to do with DNA. And so, with the vaccine, what it does is it mimics, if you like, the RNA of the virus. And that way, when we have that in our body, our body builds up an immunity. If we see if we are then unfortunate enough to be exposed. We have an immunity that prevents it, and it has nothing to do with our DNA. Our DNA isn't altered at all, but it does react against the RNA in the uh, vaccine. So in layman's terms, my terms, <laughs> it gives the body a picture of what the virus kind of looks like and says, if you see this, Again, go get it. <laughs> this isn't good, right? I mean, again, in, in its simplest terms, but we're not altering anything genetically in us at all. We're just basically no. giving our bodies a picture of this is what this is the bad stuff. And if it comes in here and you see it, go attack it. And, and yeah. in my layman's terms, is that correct? I think that's a, a great summation. You know, <laughs> yeah. Besides the DNA, Ted, another thing that we hear as a concern of patients is if I get the vaccine, Will it affect my future fertility? Not only my own personal DNA, but if I get the vaccine, will I be able to get pregnant again and not have a problem? Do you want to address that? And and the answer is it doesn't affect this at all. It doesn't Mm -hmm. affect infertility. It doesn't affect your ability to conceive. So early on when the vaccine was first being assessed, there were people who got the vaccine who didn't realize they were pregnant and there were no untoward events in the offspring that were delivered. And subsequently, there have been far more people who've been vaccinated who are pregnant with no problems at all. So in fact, we encourage people to have it because if you have comorbidities and get uh, COVID infection and you're pregnant, it can be far worse. So we've seen that, by the way. And so it's the cost benefit of the vaccine versus 
if you're pregnant and you get sick, how will that fare for both you and the baby, right? So you want to tell a little bit about what we've actually seen in clinical practice with patients that are infected? Some patients who get it and who do not have any significant problems otherwise tend to weather it pretty well. On the other hand, if there are patients, and, and obviously in my world, there are plenty of patients who have comorbidities, they have hypertension, they have diabetes, they have mm-hmm. very large BMI or really obese. All of these things can really make the situation far worse. And, and these women can be quite sick with it, as right. you know, the general population can be as well. And unfortunately, we've seen a, a demise or two. And so, you know, if you're healthy and, you know, no problems, you know, you, you can, we will be sick. And, and people, I've heard people say to me, I've never felt this terrible in my life. It can really get your attention. It's, sure. it's significant, but it's not to the level of where you're in an ICU and you're on a ventilator. On the other hand, if you have comorbidities, you certainly can be. Mm-hmm. And so it's far better to take something that prevents you from having this kind of scenario when you know, and, and I hope the whole world gets the message, this is not going to change your DNA. It's not going to change your DNA of your children to come. You're really going to be fine. So vaccination is important. So let me let me just push a little bit, because I think the question that also is typically comes at this point is, how do you know? Right. Because the feeling is this is so new. We haven't had enough time. You know, how do we know that there may not be down the road infertility issues or how do we know that there may not be some other areas? And and maybe we don't. So I don't mean to be putting you on the spot, but I think that that's typically one of some of the other things is the fear of the vaccine comes from it's so new. We don't know. And I think there's some myths around that as well. So just as an overarching thought, we are all still learning globally about COVID and the long-term effects of COVID, and especially COVID and pregnancy, because pregnant patients were eliminated from the vaccine trials initially. There's some trials going on right now that include pregnant women, but we pretty much are in a period globally of sharing data and research as it is occurring. And we now have, what, a year under our belt with tens of thousands of pregnant women with COVID that we're learning from each other. Some studies have been as many as 70,000 patients that have been infected. What are the results of them? And what are some of the things that are happening? Do you want to address a little bit about the research? So some of the studies that have come out, so collectively, they started trying to put together all the pregnant women and what uh, research was available from just patients getting this and their outcomes. One study included something like 64,000 pregnant women who had tested positive for COVID. And in those, there were 74 deaths. So, you know, while it did occur, it was not common. And obviously, we feel like the vaccine would reduce the risk for this. And in addition, of the studies that have also been carried out looking at multiple hospitals over a a multiple period of time, often the patients were asymptomatic, they had mild symptoms, some had moderate symptoms, but only like 8% had severe symptoms, and 4% were critical. So these are some of the things that we look at when we look at what's happening with COVID in the patients. So that's kind of been the, the history that we've seen so far. And while moderate COVID infections can affect you, it's the severe ones that we hope to prevent. And 
help to prevent the spread as well by using the vaccine. Dr. Patterson, can you talk a minute about transmission? Another question we get, Ted, is if I'm COVID positive, will it transmit to the baby at delivery? Yeah, and that was that's great. And I'd love to hear that because we're also curious about has there been anything in terms of the vaccine transmitting through the placenta to the baby? But yeah, like immunity, continued immunity. Yeah, well, we know that some some babies have been have tested positive for COVID after delivery, although it's been a, a small number. And it's less than 1%. Yeah. So while it can occur, it's often not, it's most likely not seen. So it doesn't seem, just to make sure I understand. So it doesn't seem, so if I'm, I'm a pregnant mother, I get COVID. It does not, it seems in very rare cases that the, the fetus is getting COVID as well. Less than 1% so far from so our far. studies, so far. Sure. Oh, right. And I would say to the second question about children that are born being positive for COVID after the vaccine. I, I don't think they have actually ever looked at that per se, okay. but I would think that is pretty unlikely because, it, you know, I, don't, I just don't see that as a situation that occurred. You think it's unlikely that, uh, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm confused, do you think, is it, if I'm a mother and I've been vaccinated, do you think there is a likelihood that the vaccine has now transmitted to the, the child? No. Okay. No, I don't think so. I mean, it's the same as if you were, say, vaccinated against hepatitis. Okay. It doesn't translate that you would automatically. The child would be. The child yeah. would automatically have the benefits of your vaccine. Great. I think one of the other things that's a big question, Mark Ted, is although we've started studying in the past year what is happening with pregnant women in COVID or vaccine cost versus benefit, we still know least of all about how long will immunity last Mm-hmm. With our vaccines, how long will natural immunity last and how long will, you know, the, the vaccine immunity last? We just don't know that yet. So I think most of the pregnancy and COVID studies that we're looking at right now have to do with complications of pregnancy, transmission of pregnancy. We haven't mentioned it yet, you know, transmission through breast milk mm-hmm. and those kind of transmission and cost versus benefit studies, as opposed to how long will this last or Will immunity be transmitted across the placenta? We're just not there yet. Right. You know, and just just staying with the immunization topic while we're talking about this, you know, prior to COVID, I know in the past probably 10 years, there's been a lot around immunizations and are they good? Are they not good for the child and things of that nature? What is your guys' opinion in terms of immunizations, safety around the whole process, not just with the COVID vaccine, but just vaccines in general? I think we should use vaccines. I understand that there are people who feel like vaccines have caused an occasional problem. But, you know, I I do long remember when polio was a real problem and it's almost been eradicated because we have been very judicious about giving vaccine for this. And that's very important. Mm -hmm. And while I really do think that vaccination is important, I think it's important to vaccinate your children. I think it's important to take a a flu shot every year. And if somebody has really experienced how bad the flu can be, prior to the onset of COVID, not in, I think it was in 2018, we actually had lost 67,000 people to the flu because they chose not to be vaccinated, which, to be honest with you, is the beauty of this country. We have the right to choose or not choose to do something. Sure. And sure. I cherish that freedom, even though I prefer to be vaccinated. If someone chooses not to, that's their choice. But diseases can kill you and uh, the flu can kill you. And prior to 
COVID coming along uh, to lose 67,000 people when you could have had a vaccine is a pretty high number. Sure. Well, and I think as for best of my knowledge, there's never been a widespread documented negative from any vaccination. Like, we, you know, we haven't said, geez, we never should have vaccinated everybody for this disease because look at all the bad it did, right? So yes. the, I think the data is in the favor of pro-vaccine. Smallpox and polio have almost been completely eradicated because of their use. While we're on vaccines, I did just want to bring up, not only are we talking about getting the COVID vaccine or recommending it as the you know professional societies and the CDC and the World Health Organization are all recommending pregnant women, you know, have the COVID vaccine. What if you've delivered, but you're breastfeeding, you know, should you now Mm -hmm. have the vaccine? And they're all doing the same. They're all recommending the same, you know, that it's safe. Yeah. It's not, it's not unsafe for the baby and it's not altering the baby in any way. It's not passing down through the baby. And so vaccination Mm -hmm. for lactating women is also, you know, on the table here. Great. This has been fun and so informative and really important for us to get this out. What do you guys, let's talk a little bit about future. What do you see? What do you think is coming down the road? I know we talked a little bit about the technology and we got Bluetooth coming on board and, you know, all it's really advancing on the technical side. You know, I mean, I wouldn't be, you know, the rural communities, I think uh, going back to the, we were talking earlier about broadband and things like that. I'm hearing a lot about this StarTAC that Elon Musk is behind and these satellites that are now going around the the earth and that they're going to be bringing the access to high-speed internet to a lot of rural communities. So I I do think that all of that technology is going to continue to be better and continue to accelerate the thing. But what other things are you guys seeing in tele that you telehealth and telemedicine that you have you most excited about? You've seen a lot change in 11 years. What's coming? You know, I think the fact that you can use it on your computer, the fact that the low Earth orbiting satellites for communication are not new. We were we were doing it many, many years ago, and we've actually used them before with us in the early days for for really remote places. But I think the fact that it will be more, maybe more cost effective will make it easier. I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah. As you said, the equipment went from being, you know, $40,000, $50,000 now to four dollars to $6,000. And so the communications is all getting, everything gets faster and cheaper over time. Right. I think for me, one of the things that is most exciting for me is that we are moving to mobile apps and better yeah. wearables when you have wearable technology where we can transmit things. And as we move from Zoom telehealth to connected telehealth, we'll move to the end user being to access it where they are. You know, when we, because everyone doesn't have access to a laptop. I think if you look at our, our childbearing age, if we can't get them on a smartphone, we're not even going to get them. So I think we're moving mm-hmm. in the right direction to go smaller, faster, more affordable and to impact more people that don't have access to services where they live. And, and I would assume you're seeing more in telemonitoring as well, right? Where Yeah, home, patient home remote monitoring that we talked about before yeah. for pregnant women was unheard of two or three years ago. Now, like we mentioned, our study in New Mexico and Utah has done a good job out there with protocols for women. I mean, I think one of the things that's going to happen with telemedicine is instead of coming 13 times to see your obstetrician and waiting in the waiting room, Mm -hmm. you'll have some of your non-testing visits right from your home and they'll be totally appropriate and it will be way faster, more convenient and easier for the provider and the patient. So the more we move to remote, the more we move to care at home and access where we are instead of 
getting up and going somewhere, I think the better the impact will be. That's great. So as we kind of wrap up here, if some of the listeners want to get in touch with you folks or learn more about what you do, what's the best place for them to find out more about you? And we'll put that on the website as well, but we'd love for you to share that. Yeah, I appreciate that. So you can visit our website at www.womenstelehealth.com. Our phone number is 404-478-3017. You can find a lot. We have samples if you want to see like what's one like. You can go to a section on our website and see what we do and uh, see some videos of how we do it and you know what it kind of looks like. It's kind of sometimes hard to wrap your head around it. So appreciate that opportunity to have people learn more. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that. And we'll be sure to put that on the website as well. So if people didn't grab it, they can check out the Heroes of Healthcare podcast.com and we'll have that when the episode gets put up there. I, I so appreciate the work you ladies are doing. I know for myself personally in my life, it's been a real passion of my wife. She volunteers at a NICU pre-COVID and love that. And we've actually gone on two mission trips to China and worked in an orphanage where there were just infants with challenges of all shapes and hydrocephalitis and that we talked about earlier and some of the other things. So loved having you guys on the show and love the work that you're doing. It's so critical. You certainly are some of the heroes of healthcare for sure. Typically, as we close each one of these episodes, I always love to ask my my question, which is who's your hero? So if you guys don't mind sharing that with us, we'd love to hear, you know, currently growing up, there's no right answer. Who is your hero for you guys? Yeah. So we appreciate that chance to give someone a shout out. One of our heroes is a a nonprofit organization um, led and started by some parents called fetalhealthfoundation.org is how you can reach them. And, you know, parents expect things to be normal. And when things go not normal during a pregnancy, it can be scary and a big surprise. This organization supports, provides research and provides hope for parents that will get a fetal diagnosis along the way. And it's a group of several high-risk OB centers across the country that patients can tap into. So fetalhealthfoundation.org is one of our heroes. And thanks for letting us highlight them for a second. Great. Well, thanks so much again for joining us. We loved having you on the show. As I say to all of our guests, we're going to stay in touch. We want to continue to hear. I think it's going to be important down the road that we update people as new information becomes available. So we consider you part of the podcast family and look forward to having you on again in the future. Sounds great. Thank Thank you you so much, Ted. Thanks again for being here. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.